Well, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 22nd as we continue in our series in this gospel. Literally two years ago, we began our study of Matthew and it has it has been rich. It has been rich for me as a pastor studying and reading about the all that goes into the writing of this gospel by Matthew and then having the privilege of sharing what this book is all about as Devin and John will attest to as well. Matthew chapter 22 beginning in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, speaking of Jesus, in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Now whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore... Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Holy Spirit, we believe in you, the giver of life. And we ask this morning that you would give life to your word that we might find life in the truth of your word. Lord, we believe your word because we know that you are speaking to us. You are speaking directly to us because you are present here today. And so may, may we submit ourselves to your authority, to your wisdom, May our faith in you grow as we learn about you. And may our knowledge in you grow that we might live lives to bring glory to your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Growing up on, in elementary school years back in the 60s, Saturday mornings for me was all about watching cartoons. Rocky and Bullwinkle, The Jetsons, and my most favorite cartoon, The Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote. <clears throat> Every week, that dumb coyote would try and trap the Roadrunner so he could eat him. He tried dynamite to blow him up, a massive rock to crush him, nets to catch him, and many other schemes, but he always failed. And I can, with happiness, say today the roadrunner lives on. (laughs) 
Now, these next three pericopes or stories that we will read in Matthew's gospel all have a similar theme to my favorite cartoon. The religious establishment, just like Wiley e. Coyote, is always trying to trap Jesus. They keep trying to trap him in order to get rid of him. Trap, they trap him to silence him and trap him, hopefully, to destroy him. But as we will see, Jesus is far wiser and clever than a cartoon roadrunner, and he is never cornered by these religious hypocrites. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this first story where the Pharisees and the disciples and the Herodians try to trap Jesus with a question about paying taxes. Each of the gospel writers tells this story in a slightly different way, but each helps describe the hatred and resentment and Jesus' remarkable answer to this trapping question. Now, Jesus' cleansing of the temple, his cursing the fig tree, and the parables he shared about God's judgment against the Pharisees and priests have incited them. It has brought about their anger, and so they are intent on finding a way to stop this man. Last week, Devin wonderfully showed us how Jesus' parables seriously critiqued these religious leaders. The Jewish leaders, the Jews were like sons who promised to serve their father but refused when the time came. They were like tenant farmers who agreed to work the owner's land and pay rent, but they ended up refusing and just occupying the land. And they refused to attend the royal son's wedding, but instead abused and killed all the servants that the Father sent, all representing God and these hypocritical Pharisees. And so Jesus judges them rightly for their evil hypocrisy. Their defilement of the temple is clear, and their wicked leadership over the nations has brought about the judgment of God. And so being publicly humiliated by Jesus, they, they just grow in their angst and hatred and commitment to kill him. And these, this question that we'll be reading, there are three pericopes, three stories where three questions are being asked. This first one we read is a question that they ask Jesus where they think that there is no good answer. That one way or the other, whatever he answers is going to get him in deep trouble. That he will either violate Jewish law or Roman law, both of which can lead to his death. It doesn't matter how it happens. What's important is that it happens. And so here in 22, 15 through 22, they believe this first question is going to lead to those two result, one of those two results. That if he, if he disagrees with paying the tax, he'll stir up Rome's anger against him and there will be a death penalty. And if he says, yes, pay the tax, it will stir up the crowds who hate paying the Roman tax that is imposed upon them. So, three points this morning. A, ta a trap, a tax, and a stunning reply. A trap, a tax, 
and a stunning reply. First, the trap. Look at verses 15 through, through 17. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him. Note that. The Pharisees did not come themselves. They were cowards. And time and again, as we read earlier in Matthew, each time the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus, which they have been doing, and each time they, they went to him, they got humiliated. And so they send their disciples this time. And they sent their disciples to him, along with Herodians, saying... Now, this is... This is the evilness of these men. In Luke 20, 19 through 26, Luke describes this scene with even more vivid detail about what's going on inside of these men's hearts. He describes their, their, their evil intent very vividly. Luke 20, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they may catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor, which would mean his death. So while Jesus continues to teach the crowds in the court of the Gentiles, it says here that the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in the, his words. They gathered privately in another part of the temple to plan a way to bring him down. And their plan is they send these disciples along with the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? The Herodians are followers of Herod, some who were Jewish, most pagans, descendant actually from the Edomites, which were Israel's ancient enemies. They are supporters of Rome. And so the Herodians and the Pharisees at any other time but this would be natural enemies. But when Jesus is the common enemy, they're willing to get together. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they come to Jesus with flattering words. In verse 16, Teacher, we know that you are true. They come with these flattering words that they don't believe, but ironically, they're speaking truth about who Christ is. These guys are literally dumber than Wiley Coyote. They tell him, you are true and reliable when you speak about the things of God. But they don't believe it. These hypocrites actually manage to say four things that are true about the Christ. Teacher, we know that you are true. Number one, and teach the way of God truthfully. Number two, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. Number three, for you are not swayed by appearances. That is who our Savior is. That is who the Christ is. And these men are saying these things by words of flattery, insincerity, but the reality is they're speaking truth. How ironic that is. God used a donkey with Balaam. He uses these men to speak truth about the Savior. 
He doesn't care. He doesn't care about pleasing people. Jesus isn't a respecter of persons about status or job or clothing or title. It means nothing to him. But these, these disciples of the Pharisees, they think their flattery will entice Jesus to respond in a prideful way. Oh yeah, I know the answer to this. Their question is designed for a yes or no answer. But Jesus is not deceived by their flattery because he sees into their hearts. They don't want help. They want to destroy him by his answer. As I said earlier, if Jesus says that it's okay to pay the tax, the crowds, the Jewish crowd around him will become angry and they'll be stirred up against him because he'll be supporting Rome and the oppressive tax that they have to pay. If he says, don't pay the tax, his answer will be used to denounce him to the Roman authorities by the Herodians who are supporters of Rome. In 6 AD, another Galilean... Many, many, obviously, years before, another Galilean named Judas stirred up a revolt because the Romans were putting on another tax. Well, that, re that revolt ended up in all of the Galileans that supported Judas in this revolt were put to death. They were lined up across the landscape on crosses. And it was Rome's stamp no one opposes Rome. No one opposes the taxes we put on you. And so when they ask Jesus this question, they know what happened in 6 AD. And they're looking back to that. This is what we want. We want Rome to put him to death. And Jesus answers them. But Jesus, verse 18 aware of their malice. Do you pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus famously avoids the answers that the Pharisees and the Herodians are hoping for. Answer he does, but he avoids the danger. He begins by letting them know that their scheme is wicked. Jesus, aware of their malice, says, why? Put me to the test, you hypocrites. Another step of humiliation. His, their wicked scheme doesn't fool him. He knows their purpose is to trap him with this test, not to seek wisdom. So he exposes them who they are. And as we will see, like Wiley Coyote, this trap will fail. Now, this tax that, that is, this is, so that, that is the trap. That's setting the trap for Jesus. But now there's the tax. 17 to 21. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Verse 19. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Now this tax that they're talking about is called a poll tax. It was, it was used to support the infrastructure of the Roman government. That was, and the coin used was a silver denarius, which amounted to basically a daily wage for a laborer or a soldier. And it was a tax that was paid monthly. So you're taking about, thinking about an entire day's wage being taken away. And a negative answer, if, they had said, if he had said no, obviously the Roman government would respond. And if he had said yes, 
the crowd would respond as well. Now, first, Jesus' request for denarius is more than a visual aid. He's not just asking for a coin for some visual aid. Pious Jews strongly objected to this silver coin because it had an idolatrous graven image on it, a graven image of Caesar. And it had an inscription on it. On one side, it said that he was the son of God. And on the other side, it said high priest. So this coin was, was one of idolatry. If you remember Exodus 20, verse 4, in the Ten Commandments, the Lord says, you shall no, have no graven images before me. Now, the Romans allowed at one point for the Jews to create their, their own non-idolatrous coin, a copper denarius. But over time and over compromise, the Jewish priests, the Pharisees, allowed this silver coin to be used in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles, in the place where there would be money changers and sellers of animal. And so you see graven images coming into the house of God. And so when Jesus asked for the tax coin, it's right there available in the court of the Gentiles where all this is taking place in the very temple where God is to be honored. Jesus is telling these religious leaders. He's exposing their idolatry. You, you are to be the most pious and the most godly. So what are you doing with pagan money in God's holy temple? How is it that you allow these graven images to defile my temple? Jesus wasn't objecting to the coin itself. He understood the need for it in the culture, society, but to where and how it was being used. So now Jesus answers their question. And he asks them, whose image is on the coin? Caesar's, they say. And they're acknowledging by saying this that, that they, they submit to Rome, uh, Roman's authority because they're using this coin. And they're submitting to Caesar as the ruler of the land. And so Jesus tells them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give Caesar his coin back, is what he's saying. His, his face is inscribed on it. His name is inscribed on it. So give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And by saying this, there's no possibility that an accusation by the Herodians or by others can come against Jesus before the Romans. Now, surprising to many at this moment, and even today, Jesus makes it clear that it's not wrong to submit to the governing authorities, although things in this culture would later change. And very well could change in our culture. At this time, the Roman government wasn't in opposition to God, so it was appropriate and it was okay now to submit to the laws and the taxes that were being imposed upon these people. When the government is in opposition, 
when it creates, in a sense, a gospel of Caesar, so to speak, then it's time to refuse and obey. Years later, Caesar Nero required Christians to swear a loyalty oath to him by saying, Caesar is Lord, which they could not do and which they did not do and which they were put to death for. But now is not that time. Listen, every government is filled with corruption. Every government uses our tax money at times for ungodly purposes. Is God not aware of that? Of course he is. And he still tells us in no uncertain terms in this passage, pay taxes to Caesar. Submit to the government until there is a time and place we must refuse, which we see in Acts 5 in 28 and 29 when Peter is told to stop preaching the gospel. And he says, nope, put me in prison, put me to death, but I will not stop preaching the gospel. But remember this. The authorities are God's servants. Even evil governments provide good things. The Romans provided peace by protecting through their armies. They provided roads that allowed Jesus to walk through all the countryside to proclaim the gospel. They created aqueducts for water to feed the people so they could water their fields. God used them to advance his purposes, and God still uses governments today. So what is, what is your attitude towards paying taxes? How many of you joyfully wait to do your tax returns and just excited when you see how much you have to pay? <laughs> A few years ago, with health insurance and Obamacare and it was my own stupidity and I got it wrong, but I got a bill in the mail from the United States government that said $11,000. I don't like my government at that moment. And to this day, Caesar and I are not friends. Jesus in Hebrews, it says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Listen, it wasn't the cross that Jesus found joy in. It was his obedience to God and the purposes and plans of God that were being fulfilled that he found joy. And that is what Jesus is really indicating here. We are to find joy in honoring God through our obedience to the governing authorities that he places in our lives. Jesus declared the divinely ordained obligation of citizens to pay taxes to whatever government is over them. Paying, paying taxes is a legitimate duty, he is saying, but specifically binding on us as Christians because we're bound by God's word. He, Jesus makes no exemptions or exceptions, even under rulers who are corrupt or pagan or idolatrous like the Roman government, who, which would soon nail Jesus to the cross in just a couple of days. The very government that executes the Son of God was to be paid taxes by God's people. At Romans 13, let every person be subject to governing authorities, for because of this you pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, for this is the will of God. And so Jesus makes a very interesting point here for us as Christians. 
Whose government do we really live under? We live under His. And He's the one who installs the governments that we physically live under at this time. Brothers and sisters, there is a time coming when the government that we will live under is perfect and pure and undefiled and incorruptible and imperishable and unfading. And that is when we are in God's presence for all eternity. Attacks. There's the trap. Attacks. And now there is a stunning reply. Now, Jesus replies, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. We must must be careful not to let the simplicity of Jesus' answer hide the profound truth that he's teaching. The second part of his answer is our focus in this message, actually. Render to God things that are God. The main point of this passage, even though I spend a bit of time on it, is not about paying taxes. Although that's a point Jesus is making, because something as simple as paying taxes is an expression of our, our, our obedience and our trust in the Lord. The main point that Jesus is making in this passage is our lives belong to God. Render to God what is God's. The coin bears Caesar's image, and so it belongs to Caesar. Whose image do you bear? You bear God's image. He created you in his image. And since you bear his image, like the coin that belongs to Caesar, you belong to to God. Animals do not bear God's image. I don't care how much you love your dog, and I can't understand why you would even love a cat. You, you, animals do not bear God's image. Trees and plants and the the physical world does not bear God's image. Only humans, only you and I bear God's image. What an honor and a privilege we have that God would create us in his image. If we are to render to God what is God, then our lives, Jesus is saying, they're not our own. They don't belong to you and to me. We, We do not own them. We do not rule our lives. Our bodies do not belong to us. We exist because God wills it. He gives us life and he gives us breath each day. We don't sustain ourselves. We belong to him. Render to God what is God's. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. That price was the death of Christ on the cross for your sins. So glorify God in your body. Our, our identity as image bearers is in Christ who redeemed our dead souls. Listen, the world around us, it stumbles along like a blind man searching for some identity that will make them feel important. Each, each one is trying to find an ind- identity in something like in wealth, in sexuality, in success, in politics. They all seek some kind of identity that will give their lives meaning. 
The tragedy is having the wrong identity when you stand before God's judgment throne has a horrible ending. Listen, our image was distorted and corrupted in the garden. And judgment came. But Christ restores our image through his saving work. The gospel promises and offers the only hope that we have beyond judgment. And other than identifying with Christ as our Savior, any other identity ends in eternal damnation, eternal judgment. It is why this statement, render to God what is God, is so crucial to each one of us. All of you. All that you have. All that you do. All that you are belongs to Him. Because you bear His image. And young people, listen to me. You young who are, who are not adults yet, as you grow up, don't seek to find your identity in your career or in your accomplishments or in sports or in anything else. Find your identity in Christ and Christ alone. Because you are to render to God what is God's. We were, as Paul writes, bought with a price through the body and blood of Jesus. And when Jesus tells the Pharisees and all those around them that they are to give to God what belongs to God, he means their entire lives, which they had not been doing. Their lives were about their honor and their accomplishments. And Jesus just turns that around and says, everything, everything belongs to me. Every part of your life and every part of our lives. Our marriages belong to God. The implication of that is how we treat our spouses, how we treat God. How we treat our children who belong to God. How we treat our careers, how we treat our possessions, how we treat our church, how, how we live, all belongs to God. We owe Him everything. He is the sovereign one, brothers and sisters, not us. And so we render to God what belongs to God. Listen, as a, as a Christian, if you are a Christian, you are to be a reflection of God's character. His love, his kindness, his mercy, his gentleness, his patience, his sacrifice, his dignity. God created you in his image because he loves you and chose you, as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, he chose you before the world was even created to bear his image. So much so that he sent his son to die on a cross for you to pay for your sin and your judgment. He paid your death and then he rose again to newness of life that we might rise to life. What is so encouraging is that when we submit our lives to him and we obey his word, we experience in a very unique and particular way his good and loving and merciful and patient and wise and protective care. Because he loves us. Listen, if you are the ultimate ruler and decision maker in your life, you will always be troubled. You will always be error prone. You will always be anxious. You will always be empty. But that 
doesn't have to be. So consider this morning, where, where may you not, may not have given to God what belongs to Him? What have you been holding back? What do you try to control? Render to God what belongs to God. Now, verse 22 closes with this. When they heard all this, when they heard his reply, I believe when they understood his reply, when they heard it, they marveled. They marveled. But what they did not do is they did not follow him. They turned away from him still. Because it says, and they left him and went away. Let us not do that this morning. Let us not turn from him. We are his image bearers. Father, Father, thank you for creating us in your image. What an honor and privilege it is to reflect you in this world. Help us in our daily lives to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. Help us to live lives that when we are seen, the light of the gospel is clear and bright that you may be glorified. Thank you for creating us in your image. And this morning, as a church, as individuals and as a church family, we commit to render to you what belongs to you, which is our entire lives.